Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series. It's been a, it's been a great um, uh, great to see so many uh, included and listening in. Um, if you haven't or if you've missed any lectures, please go to the New York State AUA section uh, website and all of the uh, previous lectures are posted there. They're great study tools um, and their surveys as well. So please, if you have time, fill it out and uh, let us know how we can improve. Um, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Kirsch uh, with us today. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor. He was, you know, he originally started his residency here um, at Columbia. He was, um, you know, chief when our chair was in his residency program and when our program director, Dr. Cooper, was in medical school. So there's a very long connection uh, between our faculty and Dr. Kirsch, originally from uh, Long Island, and has just had such a prolific uh, career here and into his uh, fellowship at CHOP and now um, at Emory. He's currently a professor of pediatric urology um, at the Emory School of Medicine and director of pedi the pediatric robotic surgery program. Um, we thank you so much for coming and uh, providing us a talk on you know, the management, grading, and uh, invas uh, minimally invasive treatment options for uh, VUR. So uh, I'll, I'll pass the uh, mic over to you and thank you again for um, uh, joining uh, this lecture series. Okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, the pleasure is really mine. Um, it's been, uh, you know, a great ride starting off in New York and then moving to Atlanta. I've been here for 20 years. Um, uh, you know, I started off doing a lot of research. Uh, it's something that I've enjoyed and I've done my entire career. So um, I'm going to share with you my experience um, with reflux and I'm going to focus on its changing management over the years. Uh, we've developed some novel gradings, uh, grading systems for it, um, and also discuss minimally invasive treatment. So let me start off with a patient. Uh, this is Hensley. Uh, this is a two-month-old girl who presented uh, with fever after her immunizations. Um, soon after that, uh, she um, report, her parents reported that uh, in the past, during pregnancy, there was antenatal hydronephrosis. She was placed on antibiotic prophylaxis, but really with no history of uh, any uh, clinical problems um, and what was thought to be a relatively normal ultrasound as a newborn, uh, nothing was done. So she presented to an outside hospital with fever. They sent off a urine specimen, um, which uh, showed white cells, leukocyte esterase, and bacteria. Um, and because they were unable to get IV access or get any blood work because of this, she was then transferred to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, where um, I work uh, for further evaluation. So she presented to um, uh, our emergency room uh, where she was well appearing and not anorexic. Uh, her urine was consistent with an infection. A culture was sent and she was treated with antibiotics and Tylenol. Well, the ER doctor there uh, then um, consulted with the referring doctor from the outside hospital and they said because there was minimal hydronephrosis, they spoke to the family and the primary physician again, they thought it was so subtle, 
that they didn't have to do anything further. The patient was sent home and antibiotic prophylaxis was stopped. So three weeks later, she presented um, uh, back to our hospital with an additional febrile urinary tract infection. She was restarted on her uh, antibiotic treatment and then put on antibiotic prophylaxis. And we went ahead and ordered an ultrasound and a BCUG. And here are the findings. So you can see in the, in the left kidney, there is some mild pelviectasis, some mild hydronephrosis. And then if you look at the bladder, everything looks fairly normal, except that there's a small area here, which represents a dilated left ureter. And then the right kidney was completely normal. So based on the history, not so much the ultrasound, but based on the history, uh, we went ahead and, and got a BCUG. And what I want to point out here is that as the bladder fills, very early in the filling cycle, you could immediately see reflux into the left ureter. Um, as the bladder fills, you see high-grade reflux on both sides. Um, and this, what you see here, is called intrarenal reflux. Intrarenal reflux is associated with high-grade reflux, is associated with breakthrough infection, it's associated with renal scarring. So we got a renal scan, and the differential function showed that the left side had 35% and was pretty much a scarred kidney with a pretty normal-looking right kidney. So in order to provide some perspective and context to my talk today, I'm going to ask five questions. The first is, why is reflux diagnosis important? The second is, what factors predict resolution? Who needs treatment? And what are the trends in anti-reflux surgeries over the years? What is minimally invasive in children? What defines success post-op? Is open surgery better than other options? Where does robotic surgery fit in? And finally, what do parents want for their children? So why is reflux diagnosis still important? Well, there's associations and consequences. One of the consequences of having recurrent pyelonephritis is renal scarring, hypertension, impaired somatic growth, and renal failure. But so too um, is the uh, uh, association of congenital renal dysplasia. Congenital renal dysplasia means that the kidney doesn't develop normally in utero, and that is also associated with these findings. The patient who probably has the worst outcome is the boy who's never had a urinary tract infection who has bilateral grade five reflux. That's not who I'm really gonna talk about today. I'm gonna to talk more about uh, acquired uh, scarring and, uh, and acute pyelonephritis. So the, um, the AUA 10 years ago uh, published the reflux guidelines. And basically what they show is that reflux is a risk factor for pyelonephritis and renal scarring. That antibiotic prophylaxis while being safe is not well tolerated by parents or accepted and it has limited long-term benefits for low grades of reflux, namely grades one and two. Um, Anti-reflux surgery has been shown clearly to reduce the risk of febrile urinary tract infections. And finally, bowel bladder dysfunction uh, and moderate to severe grades of reflux were significant um, uh, risk factors for recurrent infection and scarring. So in talking about um, bowel and bladder dysfunction, uh, it's important for you guys to know when you sit for your boards, uh, is the role of bowel and bladder dysfunction and infection and reflux. If you look at the, um, the results um, that were published in the Journal of Urology um, that looked at bowel and bladder dysfunction, uh, risk of UTI versus patients without bowel and bladder dysfunction, 
you can see that the risk based on these forest plots is a lot higher if a patient has bowel bladder dysfunction compared to if they did not. That is also true with the resolution of reflux, um, which also uh, impedes the resolution uh, in patients with bowel and bladder dysfunction. In 2011, the AAP uh, published UTI guidelines, um, and there were seven action statements, uh, one of which was that febrile infants with their initial febrile UTI uh, should undergo a renal and bladder ultrasound. Uh, but what got the pediatric urology community upset the most was that the VCUG was no longer considered something that was useful in the evaluation of the febrile infant with a positive urine culture. And this was based on the premise that most reflux need not be treated. So we looked at this pretty soon after the publication of the uh, UTI guidelines. We wanted to ask what was the difference between the patient presenting six months before the guidelines were presented and six months after? And we looked at children that were ages two months to two years that presented to the ER with their initial first febrile UTI. Um, and we chose this age group because this was the age where the AAP UTI guidelines um, were applied to. And what we found was very interesting. First of all, in the cohort before the guidelines, the use of renal bladder ultrasounds was not 100%, it was about 75%. Uh, but after the guidelines, um, this went down significantly. Um, and um, you know, we concluded that uh, the uh, physicians were really not utilizing uh, sonograms as they should. Okay, so um, what was also uh, important was that by design, VCUGs uh, were shown to drastically uh, decrease. So if you look at the cohort before, 72% were getting VCUGs, and that dropped down to 31%. That was significant. So VCUGs drastically decreased. Again, that's really by design. But the risk of reflux and its severity was unchanged. Um, the physicians were following these guidelines. Um, but importantly, the abnormal ultrasounds did not predict whether patients had reflux, and they did not predict whether or not they had severe reflux. So let's talk about factors that predict resolution and clinical risk in patients. A pediatric urologist uh, looks at patients kind of like this pie chart here. We assess the risk of febrile UTI. We're typically seen with a patient with a, with a first or second infection, then we ask, what is their risk of having another one? So you can see that reflux really just makes up one of nine risk factors, but it's a very important risk factor. Other factors include anatomic abnormalities, antibiotic resistance, renal scarring, uh, foreskin in boys, bowel bladder dysfunction is a very important one, uh, the age of the patient, uh, UTIs beget more UTIs, and that's an exponential curve as after you get past two or three, um, the risk goes way up as does scarring. And then the genetics of the family, the patient and the bacteria. We take these um, risk factors and then we decide, is this a patient that really doesn't need any treatment? We observe them, do they need antibiotic prophylaxis or do we offer them some kind of surgical therapy? So let's talk about grading. The international grading system has been uh, published since the 80s um, and it, it basically is divided between one and five. Low grade is grade one and two. Grade three is moderate grade, and grade four to five is high grade. 
the grades, moderate to severe reflux typically will get referred to a urologist. The low-grade reflux patients may not be treated at all, um, and those typically will not come to us. What's important about this grading system is that there is a lot of error with it. So in the largest study done to date, the uh, RIVER trial, which I'll go over a little bit in a few minutes, um, they found that 28% uh, of VCUGs uh, were found to have disagreement between expert radiologists as part of the study. Uh, and this error really occurred with grades two, three, and four. Uh, so you could say, well, that means that grades one and grade five are the ones that we could get right, whereas there's going to be an error in the middle. And that makes sense that the error would be in the middle, and probably the error is mostly with grade three. So if you look at resolution rates, we could ask, well, maybe this is too basic. This uh, graph, or, or uh, these graphs show that as um, time goes on, this is a five-year period, if you have high-grade bilateral reflux, really, that's not going to go away. If you have low-grade reflux, it will go away, but it may take many years. Today, parents don't want their children on antibiotic prophylaxis at all. Um, the concept of being on it for five years is really in the past. And Terry Hensel's data years ago uh, showed that the compliance with antibiotic prophylaxis based on prescription refill data was less than 20%. And so um, when we look at these curves and you say, yes, you have low-grade reflux, in a year there's a 50% chance it will still be there, a lot of parents would want some type of intervention even with the low grades of reflux. So those patients tend to either have no treatment or go on antibiotic prophylaxis. But look at grade three. Grade three seems to be all over the, all over the board. Uh, I'll point out that if you are an old child, older child with bilateral uh, grade three, then it tends not to go away. But if you are a younger child with unilateral grade three, it tends to go away kind of like grade two. So, um, so this, this is all over the board. I think it points out that we're not very good at, uh, at grading and maybe a lot of these grade threes aren't grade threes, uh, but it also shows that the system may not be perfect. So how can we do better? How can we look at the patient, assess their risk, look at their VCUG and come up with a better way of determining their resolution rate? So we, we did this um, several years ago in 2014. We published a, a novel grading system uh, called a VUR index, and it was used to predict the resolution or significant improvement in children with reflux that was primary reflux. Uh, we do a lot of ECUGs in Atlanta. Uh, in this study, we were looking for children uh, that were diagnosed before age two with at least two VCUGs by age three. So we start off with 10,000 VCUGs over a four-year period. After we went through our inclusion and exclusion criteria, we were only left with 229 children. And I'll point out that the urologists weren't the ones ordering these VCUGs. It's mostly done by the, the uh, pediatricians. So a couple of uh, interesting findings. First of all, uh, most reflux occurs during the filling phase of the bladder cycle. And so if you look at early filling and late filling and voiding, 86% will happen during filling. Only 14% happens during the voiding phase. And this is just to illustrate what early filling looks like. And I showed you that on the case before, uh, but this is presumed to be uh, low bladder volume, low bladder pressure. And so the timing of reflux, as I'll show you, is just as important or even more important than the grade of the reflux that's ultimately shown on the BCUG. This is an example of voiding only reflux, presumably high bladder pre um, pressure and high uh, bladder volume.
So the first question we'll ask then is, does the timing of reflux on a VCUG correlate with the radiographic grade? And so if you, if you look at this information, you can see that if you just looked at the green, which is voiding reflux, um, almost all patients that have low-grade reflux, uh, which is grades one and two, um, that's the only place where you see voiding reflux. If you look at grade three, very few of them will have voiding reflux. Let's look at early filling reflux. Yes, early filling reflux can be seen with any grade of reflux, but it is most significant in patients with high-grade reflux. So voiding only, mostly low-grade, early to mid-filling, mostly high-grade. Next question is, can the competency of the real orifice be determined endoscopically? In other words, if you look in the bladder, if you direct fluid at the ureteral orifice, and I'll go over what hydrodistension is in a minute, um, you could see that the, the external portion of the tunnel opens. You could see the internal part of the uh, tunnel open. And if you see both open, that's, the, that's a very incompetent ureter. That's the one that we see associated with reflux. So here's the hydrodistension grading system. If you hydrodistend and the water that is attached to that cystoscope is hung pretty high, you know, we walk into the room, we don't really change it. It's probably 80 to 120 centimeters uh, high. It doesn't really matter. You can't make a normal ureter open even with high pressure. So if you go through the grading system, non-hydrodistension is H0. If, it, if the ureteral orifice flutters, it's an H1. If you could see into the tunnel, but you can't see out the bladder, it's an H2. And then the highest degree of hydrodistension is when either you could put your scope up the ureter or you could hydrodistend and see both the internal and external uh, orifice. So this is kind of a busy uh, graph, but I think it's really important. And I think it illustrates some of the problems we have with grading. Let's just look at what we have here. So what we have is a control group. This control group is 100 patients who have never had reflux and they've never had a UTI. From zero to five, these are patients with reflux. Zero means that they have reflux on one side, and this is their non-reflux and contralateral ureter. Let's just look at the H3 ureter. Again, that's the one that opens up the most. H3 ureters can be seen with any patient with, with uh, reflux, even in the non-refluxing ureter. But as you go up in grade of reflux, the degree of H3 ureters increases substantially. And what I want to point out is that the non-refluxing contralateral ureter in a patient with reflux is different than a control ureter. And this is why a lot of pediatric urologists feel that reflux is a bilateral disease. And so uh, you could conclude from this is that all patients with reflux have hydrodistension and higher hydrodistension is seen with increased grades of reflux. Next question is, does the timing of reflux on a VCUG correlate with hydrodistension grade? In other words, if you have a patient after their first VCUG, you see early filling reflux, can you expect that they will have a H3 ureter? Can you determine the competency just based on looking at a picture on a VCUG? And I'd say absolutely yes, you can. And so if you look at patients with early filling reflux, the H3 ureter is found in over 80% of cases. Um, and therefore, the vast majority of early filling reflux is associated with an abnormal or incompetent ureteral orifice. So what has happened to VCUGs over the years? Well, if you look at this period between 2004 and 2008, um, VCUGs were kind of going up 
there, this is the time where endoscopic injections started to become popular, and I'll show you some national trend data on that as well. In 2008, six key articles that went into the AAP UTI guidelines were read and adhered to by pediatricians. These are the studies that showed that maybe reflux wasn't so important, that VCUGs weren't necessary. And look at the drop. And when the AAP UTI guidelines were published, it didn't drop substantially anymore. It just continued to drop at the same rate. So with fewer VCUGs, we could then ask, can we improve the data? Um, and, and I would say that reflux is, is kind of like prostate cancer. Um, you know, we've always considered this the prostate cancer of children because, you know, it's targeted by guidelines and um, some of it doesn't need to be diagnosed or treated, uh, but some of it really better be uh, diagnosed and treated. And it's the same thing with reflux. Um, so can we improve our data? Maybe grade uh, as we, we know it, it shouldn't be used because maybe its importance should be questioned. And so what we did uh, in this VOR index study is we, we looked at the effect of having ureteral or periureteral anomalies. What I mean by anomalies in this case are two things, periureteral diverticulum or um, a complete duplication anomaly of the ureter. Okay, so if you look at those patients, if you have anomalies, a patient has about a 24% chance of resolving their reflux over the next two years. If you look at grade and you just divide this between high-grade reflux or no high-grade reflux, 14% of patients with high-grade reflux will resolve or improve over the next two years. And if you look at timing of reflux, if you have early filling reflux, you had about a 15% chance of resolution, whereas if you had late filling, it went up to 60%. So early filling reflux is a very, very important risk factor. And this was all based on uh, multivariate logistic regression and confirmed by a neural network model. So what could we say here? Okay, the, the, so if you, the VOR index is this. So this is kind of the VOR index money slide. Um, if you look at the scoring system, it goes from one to six. You get three points against you if you have early filling reflux. Uh, later filling reflux is two, voiding only reflux is one. If you have anomalies, um, it gives you one point. If you have high-grade reflux, it gives you one point. And if you're a girl, you get one point against you because boys tend to resolve their refluxes, reflux faster. Uh, so how do you get a one? A one is basically a boy with voiding reflux and no anomalies uh, with low-grade reflux, as I said. So, um, so that case you know, is, is not a high-risk patient, perhaps. And six is usually a girl with early filling reflux, high-grade reflux, and anomalies. So let's go back and look at our patient Hensley, not to be confused with Hensel. Uh, this is a patient that has early filling reflux, so she gets a three. Uh, she has no anomalies, gets a zero, has a, a high-grade reflux, gets a one, and as a girl, gets another one. So that's a total of five out of a total of six. Now, if you look at the, uh, the data for resolution, um, you can see that a five or a six, those two act the same, um, is less than 10%. And in this study, you can see that if you have an index of three uh, to six, your chance is on less than 50% that you will resolve or significantly improve your reflux. Um, after we published this, we wanted to develop a validation cohort group. So we added more patients from Atlanta, and then we added patients from Iowa. And one of my colleagues, Chris Cooper, and my former fellow, Angie Arlen, 
um, combined to uh, put our data together. Um, and so we have the initial cohort resolution curve, and then we have a validation curve. And you can see that VR index was highly associated with time to resolution. Uh, and we therefore validated this in children less than age two. Um, Mike Garcia, one of my current partners, and, um, and uh, was a, when he was a fellow, um, we looked at the same data for kids over age two. So this actually went up to age 17 or 18. Um, so you can see the curve exactly follows and mirrors the curve that we showed before. So VR index works for all ages. Uh, the, the Iowa group, Chris Cooper and others, um, showed that early filling reflux on urodynamic studies, and that was defined by less than 35% of predicted bladder capacity, was significantly associated with breakthrough infections. Um, and they also showed that a dilated ureter, uh, and they measured the ureters on DCUGs, was also associated with this. So we thought, well, is it possible that a high VR index would also correlate with increased risk of febrile UTI? Because remember, everything I just showed you about VR index was designed to show resolution, not risk of infection. So uh, the uh, Iowa group then went ahead and, um, and published uh, about ureter, um, ureteral diameter ratio. And what that is, is measuring the ureter in the pelvis and then standardizing it to the size of the patient by measuring the distance between the vertebral bodies of L1 to L3. And this is something orthopedic surgeons do to kind of standardize patient growth. And so this was an objective uh, uh, way to uh, predict clinical outcome. And we joined forces with Iowa again um, and to try to validate the UDR uh, for predicting spontaneous resolution. And what we show here is that as your ureteral diameter ratio increases, so does the predicted probability of a breakthrough UTI. Um, and so we could ask then, you know, what is better in predicting spontaneous resolution and breakthrough febrile UTI for that matter? Is it grade that everybody has been used, using since the 80s? Is it the VOR index, which we described several years ago? Or is it UDR, measuring the ureteral diameter? And so we did that study. Uh, we got together with our colleagues in Iowa. Um, and, uh, and at this point, um, Angie Arlen uh, was at Yale. So we had three institutions now. And we had 139 children. Uh, and we followed them for about three years. And you can see their, their international grading um, distribution shown here. Uh, and what this showed is that um, breakthrough UTI was predicted best with the VR index, um, better than UDR, but importantly, both of these systems were better than grade alone. If you look at the radiographic resolution or improvement, the UDR was better than VR index, but again, both of these systems were better than grade alone. So we concluded that, therefore, that the international grading system was a relatively poor predictor of both of these uh, resolution and uh, predictor of um, infection. Uh, and given the significance of UDR, we're now gonna incorporate that. This is something done right now. We're gonna come up with a new multivariate VR index model um, and put it uh, on the internet, a, uh, a online calculator. Let's talk briefly about antibiotic prophylaxis because this is something that has clearly changed over the last several years. Um, in the past, it was common practice to use antibiotics for all children with any urinary tract abnormality, uh, including reflux. 
And over the last decade or so, the policy has changed because of poor scientific data. Uh, in other words, no prospective randomized controlled trials. And it's interesting to note that 100 years ago, Sir William Osler said, the desire to take medicine is perhaps the greatest feature which distinguishes man from animals. He went on to say that one of the first duties of the physician is to educate the masses not to take medicine. So the AUA reflux guidelines I referred to earlier um, basically said the efficacy of antibiotic prophylaxis could not be established. And this was owing again to significant limitations in studies that, that looked at this question. And so if you asked who doesn't need to be on long-term antibiotic prophylaxis, well, maybe that's easier. The patients with high-grade reflux, the ones with duplications, the ones with diverticuli, uh, maybe partial duplications in high-grade reflux. I think these are easier cases to know what to do. Um, in these cases, resolution is unlikely. There's a high prevalence of renal scars and dysplasia. There's growing concerns of daily antibiotic use. Parents and neurologic surgeons prefer to operate. And in this case, you just fix it. So you could then ask who needs antibiotic prophylaxis. So I think this is really a process of elimination. Um, so if you just kind of take out the patients with high-grade reflux, the patients with anomalies, the girls with low-grade reflux, boys with grade one to three reflux, most circumcised boys, who are you left with? Well, you're left with girls with grade three reflux. So that's the real debate. Do you put them all in antibiotic prophylaxis when 80% will not get another UTI? Or do you use a, 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 a strategy where you could predict who needs it, the ones, maybe the 20% that are at risk for UTI. And those are the ones with bowel and bladder dysfunction, the ones with renal scarring, and the ones with a history of recurrent UTIs. A very interesting uh, New England Journal poll was done in 2011, again, and this is the year that the UTI guidelines were put out. Um, and this was a kind of a generic patient of a six-year-old girl who was uh, otherwise clinically well. She's had several febrile UTIs but she's been observed off of antibiotics for three years. And the question to these experts, um, the, the first was Alejandro Hoberman, uh, who was the um, PI for the river trial. Um, they asked, how would you treat this patient? And he said that, um, that studies casting doubt on the value of antibiotics were underpowered and that the river study will prove me right. And he says, put that patient back on antibiotics. Linda Shortliff, who is a pediatric urologist in Stanford, was also on the AAP UTI committee, um, said, you could either fix it now or fix it later, it's your choice. So she was pro-choice. Uh, and then for Dr. Uri Alon, uh, who is one of our colleagues, a pediatric nephrologist from Kansas City, um, he said, if she gets infections, then fix it. Otherwise, you should observe this. So that's using logic. Now, what are clinicians doing? This was the subsequent question. They asked over 1,000 people in 82 countries who they agreed with. And you can see that logic, which means observation until there is a problem, and freedom of choice uh, beat out scientific discovery pretty badly. And so let's talk about the RIVER trial because Alejandro Hoberman, um, who did this study, uh, with uh, it was the largest uh, study and probably the maybe the last study of its size to be done. It was a double-blind randomized controlled trial comparing Bactrim to placebo, 607, uh, 607 children. Uh, and what it showed basically is that if you had placebo, you had about a 24% risk of getting a breakthrough infection. Control uh, compared to the lower risk when you're on antibiotic prophylaxis. And this was greater 
if the infants had had an initial febrile infection versus a symptomatic infection, if they had voiding dysfunction, um, and resistance, as you could imagine, was a whole lot worse in the antibiotic patient population, 63% versus none, about 20%. Uh, and scarring wasn't shown or, or really powered to show a difference. Let's talk about trends in the management of reflux. This is a study uh, uh, that Mike Garcia did in 2017 when he was a fellow. And I want to point out again the time period. Six articles that went into the UTI guidelines and then the publication of the guidelines. So if you look at these curves, you can see that we were kind of moving along pretty nicely with open surgery and deflux and robotics uh, until the guidelines were published and then all surgery just dropped substantially. So this has now become a new challenge to surgical education. I mean, the COVID-19 is pretty bad, right? You're getting some really good didactics, uh, but you may need to do a fellowship to learn how to operate. And so this is, you know, reflux was the, really the operation that created the field of pediatric urology. Uh, Reimplantation is a great operation. It's highly successful. You can learn to do it quickly. Um, but when endoscopic injection came along, um, and as you can see by my bias, which is you know, which is primary tr surgical treatment for reflux, um, uh, you could you know you could see that with fewer referrals now, you need to get good at, at these procedures. Uh, it'd be nice to be able to get good at all of them, as I'll conclude at the end. But um, endoscopic injection is typically the way I've been going since I started doing deflux in 2001. And I've had nothing uh, from my research and reviewing the literature that has really made me change my mind about that. So if you do endoscopic injection, sure, you can go ahead and do open surgery, you can do robotic surgery. But I look at robotic surgery as a replacement for open surgery, uh, not so much a replacement for antibiotic prophylaxis or uh, for endoscopic injection. Um, and so when in 2001, um, deflux was approved uh, by the FDA for primary grades two to four reflux. Now, Joran Lachran, who is a colleague uh, uh, of mine, a very good friend of Terry Hensel's, um, when I was a resident at Columbia, Joran and Arnie Stenberg uh, were the two Swedes that would come every year. And so I, I had a relationship with these guys through Terry Hensel, um, and uh, I was able to become the first uh, US site to use deflux. So we were the first ones on, on this side of the globe uh, to do deflux injections since 2001. Now, for those who don't know what deflux is, deflux is a, a very safe uh, product of two naturally occurring sugars. Uh, hyaluronic acid is a ground substance found in everybody's tissues and dextranomer. Dextranomer um, uh, is safe and this product, this combination, has been used for uh, 20 years in over 40 million procedures. Not all deflux for reflux, a lot of this is for facial plastics, uh, but this remains the only agent available in the US in, 2000, uh, in 2020. So what procedure was done? Well, this is called the Sting procedure. Now, Barry O'Donnell and Prem Puri, who are, are listed here in this reference from 1984, they were the ones that came up with the sting procedure. The sting procedure stands for subureteric Teflon injection. So if you look to, to where they put the needle, they're injecting into the detrusor muscle below the ureteral orifice. So this is kind of what I was looking at when we sat in Washington with, at the FDA meeting uh, with everybody that was going to be on the trial. And I turned to Dr. 
uh, LACRO has said, you know, we have a 70% success and, re and reflux is the only risk factor. Why don't we be more aggressive about this treatment uh, and risk obstruction? We do it for open surgery. It has about a 2 to 10% chance of obstruction and our success rate is like 95%. So how can we make this procedure better? And so we came up with this procedure um, pretty quickly after. So 2001 is the first time, you know, we did injection. And here you could see um, the modification. The modification is now doing hydrostension of the ureter and placing the needle into the floor of the ureter. And as you inject, the deflux will then raise the floor to the ceiling. And then with further injection, it will then go around the ureteral orifice. And this, this provides optimal coaptation of both the tunnel uh, and the orifice. And if there is migration or loss of volume, which have been shown to happen, um, then perhaps you'd still have a, a good effect from it. So here's the experience. Um, you know, when I uh, started doing deflux, I said in 2001, I was collecting patients and families uh, for the year before it. And so myself and my, my, one of my partners, Hal Schurz, uh, we had 100 patients on a waiting list. And so when deflux came along, we said, you know, uh, we have never done this before. Uh, we're going to keep our data together, uh, but we're, um, we're going to see if we can make improvements in the technique. And we told families that we, you know, we probably just look at it like it's 50-50. Um, and after the first 20 patients, we had a 60% uh, success rate. So we were a little bit happy, but obviously not satisfied because, you know, the, the, the gold standard is open surgery. And that has a 95% success rate. So how do we get there? So here's the sting, 72% success, no different than it had been for 20 years with Teflon. During the next period, uh, which happened pretty soon after, we kind of felt like this wasn't good enough, uh, changed the technique to the intraluminal injection with submucosal, and that's called the hydrodistension implantation technique, compared it to the sting, and you can see it was 90% versus 74%. So we felt that now we have a really good technique, but obstruction wasn't happening. So why don't we get more aggressive? And then we went on to the double hit technique, which I'll show, which is two tandem injections, uh, more proximally in the ureter and distally, until you get total coaptation with good volume. And with this technique, since 2006, we've had a success rate over 90% with all these publications. So what is the double hit technique? Uh, for those that are interested, there's a YouTube video, uh, but it's a tandem injection. The first one is proximally, the second one is distally. And so you'll go from having kind of a hydrodistending ureter to a non-hydrodistending ureter. This technique, by the way, when uh, Joran Lacker and I um, published uh, the experience <clears throat> based on a survey of the uh, US doctors, 92% were using this technique. And here's just to show what a normal ureter looks like. You hydrodistend it, you place the needle in, you do double injection, and at the end you have the appearance of a nicely coapted tunnel and orifice. So let's look at the success rate. In 2012, we looked at our clinical and radiographic results, um, and we wanted to define success in several ways, but if you just look at a negative VCUG after treatment, you could see that the success is very good after one treatment. And I just want to point out that uh, I've always defined success as one treatment and no reflux. If you look at the European data, a lot of this is one to three treatments, um, some of it is going from dilating reflux to non-dilating reflux, so it's a very important to point that out. 
So, so over 500 ureters, you could see my success with grade four reflux wasn't any different than grade one or two. What's different? The difference is that the low grades of reflux have lower hydrodistension. The higher grades of reflux tend to have higher hydrodistension. And as I'll show you, this ureter requires a different technique than this ureter. This one requires more volume to get to that success rate. This was a very interesting <clears throat> paper that was published in 2010 by my colleague, Jonathan Ruth at Duke. And when he was a fellow in Boston, um, he basically uh, asked this question of, of about 30 different programs uh, in urology across the country. Um, he said, if you have a five-year-old uh, white female with bilateral grade th three reflux, what is the likelihood that you'll do a uh, deflux injection on that? And you can see the range from less than 10% uh, you know, to all the way up to almost 90%. Um, and uh, when I asked him about this data, I said, where's Boston? He said, he had to exclude Boston because they were, they were zero. And I said, where's Atlanta? And he said, he had to exclude Atlanta. So this is pretty much all the programs between probably the least aggressive program with deflux to the most aggressive program. And so let's define success. Um, you know, I remember very clearly uh, Carl Olson, Terry Hensel, Mitchell Benson, uh, telling me that you don't treat x-rays, you treat patients. And I think you have to apply that today as well. So do you define it by no reflux on an x-ray or do you say, well, you had a patient with febrile UTIs and now they don't. Shouldn't that be how we define success? And so we did that. Uh, we looked at nine ways of uh, defining success. If you look at success, meaning that you had a negative ECUG, yes, we did very well. If you looked at success, meaning that you didn't need to do open surgery, yes, we did very well. If you look at success as no febrile UTIs after one injection, which I believe should be the way you define success, yes, we did very well. And so you could define success how you wish, uh, but clinically probably is the best way. So let's look at some data. Um, this is a study that we looked at uh, children who um, had uh, delayed VCUGs. We actually wanted to know what their success was at a year on a VCUG. Now, as you could imagine, um, families that are, you know, whose children are doing well, uh, I do not want to come back for a VCUG. So we got 50%, which we thought was good. So we had 50% with a VCUG, 50% with an early uh, VCUG, and, and then 50%, as I say, with a one-year VCUG. Uh, I'll point out that 100% of our patients that we're treating had febrile UTIs uh, preoperatively. So when you look at the clinical success rate, and again, clinical success is defined by no febrile UTI after one treatment with deflux. Uh, so 93%, if you look at the radiographic success in those patients that came back in a year, um, it was no different than the success rate of the patients that came back early, 93%. So with good success and long-term experience, we asked, well, we stopped doing VCUGs after open surgery years ago. Can we stop doing it after uh, deflux injection using the double hit technique? And so we looked at 222 children, age, mean age of four. All these patients had pre-op febrile UTIs. Half the patients had a post-op VCUG, half did not. Only 4% required any additional surgery, not just open surgery, but deflux. I very rarely are doing second injections. We followed them for three years. And what we found is that for the entire cohort of 222 patients, 94% after one treatment had no further febrile UTIs. If you look at the patients who had uh, VCUGs, the VCUG um, success rate was 90%. 
the entire cohort of patients with and without PCUGs had a 97% chance that they wouldn't have another febrile UTI. So because there was no difference whether you had a VCUG or no VCUG, uh, we concluded that you did not need to do a VCUG after treatment. Next question is, is open surgery the best method to achieve highest clinical success? Um, and I'll tell you, when I started to do this, I had to compare my data uh, to open surgery time after time after time. Um, and that was really the impetus you know, to keep on going with something like this. And then we could ask now, and we recently published a paper asking whether or not open surgery should even be considered the gold standard today. Um, so does it give you a higher clinical success? And let's just look at what's happening to open surgery over time. Again, this paper by Mike Garcia uh, at our institution showed that even before the guidelines, even before the articles were published, from 2004 all the way to present, you could see that the rate of open surgery has just slowly decreased over time. And so you could say <clears throat> that the operation that built pediatric urology is dying. Um, it is an art. It certainly is an art. It's something that you need to learn to do because this is a great operation with great results and every pediatric urologist is going to need to do this. So let's look at long-term data after uh, open surgery. This is the most modern uh, publication from Boston Children's. Uh, Caleb Nelson is, is a colleague, um, and they looked at a thousand patients, and they followed them for three years. Um, and you can see from this uh, that uh, the risk factors for febrile UTI were uh, being female, um, having high-grade reflux, having scarring, and having more infections. But if you look at the clinical success rate, it's 94%, really not different than deflux. If you look at uh, radiographic success, it was also not different. Um, so, you know, we've always quoted 95 to 98, um, and this, this series showed about 95% success. Let's look at endoscopic treatment. Endoscopic treatment was very popular. It's actually went up in incidence in between 2004 and 2008. It flattened uh, b before the guidelines were published, and then after they were published, dropped down like all the other procedures. Uh, but endoscopic injection now is more than 50% of all surgical intervention. Let's look at some long-term results of management of reimplantation, uh, deflux injection, and I'll also talk a little bit about robotic surgery. Um, my, my colleague, uh, John Roth, again, uh, and uh, at the time I, his uh, fellow, um, looked at uh, morbidity of anti-reflux surgery, and they looked at a database system that went over five states over the period of 2007 to 2010, and we're able to compare uh, equal numbers of open surgery and endoscopic procedures. Uh, the surgical patients tended to be younger, they tended to be more males, and tended to be more publicly insured, uh, but statistically fewer admissions after deflux, fewer ER visits, um, and um, as you may expect, there was more redo surgeries after deflux, it really just depended on the, on the rates. But, you know, it was 1% versus, you know, 10%. And so a 90% success with endoscopic injection is basically what they're showing here. Um, if you look at some long-term data after deflux, this is a French study. They had 68 uh, patients. They were able to look at them for up to 15 years. And there uh, showed no obstructions, a clinical success rate of 80%. The ones that had recurrent uh, febrile infections within one tended to have recurrent reflux, uh, and all these recurrences happened within five years. So they had a radiographic success of 85%, and 
and showing that the reflux um, success um, after deflux uh, is durable. This is our long-term data. Uh, we looked at 575 patients. All these patients had pre-op febrile UTIs. We looked at these patients. We wanted to have a minimum five-year follow-up in these patients. So we had 8.4 years mean median follow-up. Our reoperation rate, again, was very low, 3%. We had two obstructions. But again, we had a clinical success rate of almost 90%. We had a radiographic success rate of 93%. And families love this. It's, uh, it's 96% were either completely satisfied or partially satisfied. And the two patients, parents whose kids were obstructed obviously weren't very happy. Let's talk about robotic surgery. Robotic surgery is not done nearly as much in children as it's done in adults, uh, but it's finding its role. I would first point out that if you just look at what's a green here, that's surgery on the kidney. That's pretty straightforward, very good results. It's an easier operation. When you start to operate in the pelvis, uh, you're doing complicated surgery. That's definitely more, more difficult. Uh, but my personal experience over the last four years is 240 cases. Um, if you look at just robotic ureteral reimplantation, um, I want to point out that, that most of my cases are considered to be complex cases. Prior deflux, prior surgery, associated periureteral diverticuli, uh, or ectopia. And then I'll also point out that if you look at primary reflux, 1.4% of all my cases are primary. This is clearly showing that endoscopic injection is first-line therapy for me. Um, let's look at some results. As I said, we don't do a lot of robotic surgery in pediatric urology compared to the adult colleagues. So um, if you look at this multi-institutional study, which we were part of, we had 260 patients and we had an 88% radiographic success and 92% uh, clinical success. Again, not different than what I've shown you for open surgery or for endoscopic. Clavian uh, grade complications, three and below, were not that frequent. Then we took the same group of uh, institutions and we went ahead and did a prospective multicenter study. Um, and 143 patients basically showed the same thing. Our, our clinical success rate now over 90%, our radiographic success rate over 90%. So what are the long-term consequences, uh, concerns that you should have? And this, this is part of a talk I usually give to adult urologists. And so, you know, what should you worry about? Well, we talked about recurrent febrile UTIs, recurrent reflux, obstruction, but misdiagnosis is also something that you need to, um, to know about. Uh, this is what deflux looks like on an ultrasound. Uh, um, you, you could measure it, we've done that over time, uh, but it looks different on different studies. If you explant a deflux implant, you get microcalcification of the dextranum. Remember, the hyaluronic acid has been gone. It's been gone after two weeks. So this is what the, the dextranum looks like. And even though these may look very dense on a CT scan, um, it's microcalcified. Uh, we did this study because I was interested in what the density of deflux was. So we were able to find in our database patients that had deflux that also came to the ER for abdominal pain. And of course you get a CAT scan now if that happens. And we were able to show that the Hounsfield units for deflux were all under what was considered to be uh, um, radio opaque. So these were all radiolucent on an X-ray, whereas as you know, stones could be either radio opaque or radiolucent uh, until this patient came along. So this patient was seen in an outside hospital, had this density down in the pelvis. They diagnosed this patient with an appendicolith but then did a CT scan and then made the second misdiagnosis, which was a stone. Um, the stone was thought to be a bladder diverticulum, 
which it was not. So bladder diverticulum, stone, appendicolith, three misdiagnoses in one patient. This is another patient that had polycystic ovaries. Uh, they came to me uh, because of uh, a, a frantic mother. The girl is 20 and a transvaginal ultrasound showed this bladder mass. And the mother called me and said, is it possible it's deflux? I said, come on into the office, did an ultrasound, showed the deflux uh, only. And uh, so uh, they were very happy to know it was deflux. You know, but you know, so the conclusion of all this is that a history of deflux is probably the best way of knowing if something is a misdiagnosis. So what do parents want for their children? Um, we uh, did a multi-institutional study uh, with our colleagues in, at Duke, um, and it was really based on the Amazon Mechanical Turk. Now, I'd say to residents, if you want to get a paper done quickly, use the Amazon Mechanical Turk. It's amazing. I'll show you some more data on it. But we did this best, worst scaling um, in order to determine what parents want for their children in giving a hypothetical patient. Um, and what they really want is high treatment success. That was most desirable. The doctor recommendation and low complication was relatively important. Um, and then the societal cost, how much insurance pays for it, cosmetic effect, invasiveness. This actually was the least important. Now, this was the study done before that got Duke interested in joining us because we used Amazon Mechanical Turk, another Mike Garcia paper, um, and we paid 10, 10 cents for them to do the survey. Um, and we got about 60 responses in two or three days. When we doubled it to 20 cents, we got 1,000 responses within the week. And we asked this question, if you or your child needed to have pelvic surgery and you had this incision versus laparoscopic or robotic ports, which would you choose? Some people don't care, but really you can see that it's really equally split. But when you show them the picture of a garment covering their incision um, and visible port sites, 30% more chose to have this. Now, as you could imagine, um, as when I talk about robotic surgery, my colleagues are, don't like this. And it kind of forced people to say, okay, how can we get these ports somewhere else? So let's do hide surgery. Uh, so Patricio Gargolo published uh, papers how you could kind of move those incisions down here. And so there are ways around this and it, it allows people to be innovative. So let's go back to the management of my first patient I presented to you. Bilateral high-grade reflux, intrarenal reflux, grade five reflux. How would you manage that? If you look in the bladder, um, and this is the, the way I designate my patients, right grade four reflux, left grade five, and then hydrodistension grade. How would I treat that? Well, I let the parents decide and I give them the results of everything. And because this child was under age one um, at the time with breakthrough infections, we went ahead and did a re-implant. So let's talk about, this is really the end here, um, about individualized surgical approach. And this is how I, I present reflux and its management to all families I speak to. Open surgery is great. There are more options in approach. You can do it intravesically. You could do it extravesically. You could do cross trigonally. You could do it ipsilateral reimplant. It certainly has higher morbidity. Um, and for me, I think it's best for the youngest patients with the most complicated anatomy. They typically will go home the next day, but they have a large concealed scar. The success clinically, 94%. Radiographically, 95%. Endoscopic injection in my uh, practice is first line surgical therapy for primary reflux. 95% avoid open surgery. It has the lowest morbidity. It's a same day operation. It has very high parental satisfaction and there are no scars. And clinical success and radiographic success are both very high. 
If you look at robotic surgery, these tend to be in older patients with complex anatomy. As I said before, it's an alternative to open surgery. These are ones that have failed deflux or open surgery. They have refluxing mega ureters, ectopic ureters, duplications, diverticuli. And even though these patients are older, they tend to go home the next day also. Uh, and they have small and concealed scars. And the success rate is 93, 94%. So I presented all surgical approaches uh, and showed basically that the results are the same. So uh, as I would uh, advise uh, people that, uh, that are going to uh, urology, um, when there are multiple different treatment options, you know, try to get good at, mul- uh, at many of them. It, it gives you more options, it gives you more to discuss with families, and you'll find out which one you do the best and which one you like the best. Uh, but you know, keep your mind open, um, and uh, I wish everybody luck in their careers. Uh, I very much appreciate the opportunity to e come back uh, to visit everybody. Um, and uh, thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Kirsch, for this amazing up-to-date uh, review on you know management um, and grading and the, all of the research that you've done. We have uh, quite a bit of questions, so I just want to get through as much as we can before um, our next speaker. Um, the first question we had is, in your practice, what is the rate of obstruction that you've seen with deflux, and yeah. you know how do you manage it? Great question. Um, fortunately, it is low. When we published uh, our obstruction rate early on, it was uh, 0.5%. When I looked at my series, um, it was 0.3%. How do you manage it? You can manage it. You know, it depends when they come in, right? If it comes in, you're, you're out of town, your patient might get stented, they might get nephrostomy tubes. Um, I think nephrostomy tubes um, are a, a good way of doing it uh, because it allows you to assess um, whether you can take them out or not. If you put a stent in, the only thing you could do is take the stent out and then hope they don't get obstructed again. So I've seen them both. Fortunately, I haven't seen a lot of these patients. Uh, I get calls from around the country, but uh, I did have an obstructed patient bilaterally, got bilateral nephrostomy tubes. Um, they had one tube um, removed after a normal antibrade study. Uh, I scheduled them for a unilateral reimplantation. On the day of surgery, I did another integrate study. It went straight down. I just took out the second tube. But I have done re-implants um, post, uh, and th- these are the ones I do robotically. I've had a couple of obstructions longer term. Fortunately, they've been symptomatic. Uh, we worry about uh, long-term obstruction after any anti-reflux surgery. Um, but you know, the two cases that I presented were after two or three years, um, and they were treated successfully with robotic surgery. Gotcha. Okay. Well, kind of changing the gears to adults um, with persistent reflux, uh, whether it's after um, some kind of reconstructive surgery or ureteral reimplant, uh, does deflux work? Do you know if deflux works for adults and especially in adults who have, you know, persistent pain secondary to reflux or recurrent episodes of pilo secondary to reflux? Um, do you know of any data? Absolutely. So, uh, Terry Hemshaw. Yeah, from Columbia was the first to present uh, on the success rate in adults and had a, a very decent success rate. Um, we went on and did uh, about 60 adults, um, and uh, the success rate wasn't any different than, uh, you know, than in children. Um, you know, what's interesting about you asked about pain, you know, children don't typically present with pain from reflux, just, just the kind of the physical pressure of the urine going up into the kidney is not something kids complain about, but the 
adolescents and adults do complain of that. Uh, and that's something that I've noticed over the years. Um, I think if they have pain, you just want to be certain, you know, that they, they uh, don't have obstruction. And so, um, so I would say it makes, a, it makes a very good treatment option in adults, maybe even better, you know, because these are patients you don't want to do re-implants on. And they have other comorbidities as well. And reimplanting an adult is not a fun, easy operation, uh, but maybe a robotic approach would be better. I saw t I saw Carl Olson's picture there a second ago. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a lot of people tuning in. Um, <laughs> let me ask you one more question, um, Dr. Chris, before we um, transition uh, to our next speaker. Um, one of our pediatric urologists, Dr. Carpenter, is asking for: Are there any ureters that you would deem unsuitable for deflux, meaning, you know, those with minimal intramural tunnels? And if you don't, is there? Uh, if they do have a very short tunnel, uh, do you ever alter your technique? Yeah, very good question. Um, so, you know, the, the, the two conditions that I think are not great, um, uh, one, I think you should change the technique if you see it, is an ectopic ureter to the bladder neck or below. Those refluxing ureters, my success rate was 14%. It wasn't a big series, but if you, if you look in, you could say, well, should I try to do deflux and see what happens or not? You know, I'd say just wait, you know, just change what you do. The other one is the transplant ureter. Uh, the transplant ureter um, is sometimes a transplant into the dome of the bladder. There's no tunnel. It's hard to reimplant that patient as well. Um, but, you know, with a 50% or lower success rate in that patient population, it's actually worth trying to do a deflux injection. But if you look at just like the, uh, you know, you're saying if you have a very short tunnel, well, a very short tunnel is the H3 ureter, I would say. And the success is very good with those. It's just going to take a little bit more volume. So most kids, I think, are amenable to deflux. Ectopic ureters, I would say no. Transplant ureters, I would say it's worth a shot. Great. Well, um, just due to time, I just want to thank you, Dr. Krish, again for um, joining us for this Empire Lecture Series. It's great to, uh, at least from a resident standpoint, I mean, this is going to be an amazing review for us. If you tuned in late, the lecture will be available um, online after the session. Um, and again, thank you very much. Um, there's a few more questions, if you don't mind sticking around in the chat um, that some people have asked. Um, sure. If you could get uh, addressed, those, that would be great. Um, but thank you again.